Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Hello, friends. We're back. We're almost done. Uh, there aren't many preaching services left. I was actually thinking just a second ago, if you're new here and you've been coming this semester, uh, it might be weird to you that it feels like, I, I mean, you've, I don't know how many different speakers you've heard this semester, but it's a lot. Like, it's not like a normal church where you have one person or maybe two people who are doing most of the preaching. Uh, because just frankly, I couldn't do that. I would die if I had to actually preach every week. It is an insane amount of like energy and effort that goes into getting out one freaking paragraph. So I would just die. And I know that Derek would also die. Um, but it's also not just for our sakes. It's because we actually think it's legitimately a good thing for you to be able for some students to be able to participate in the speaking that goes on and for you to hear from different voices because I don't know everything. I just know something. So anyway, thanks for sticking with us. Max, Max Beard, that video was awesome. Max is like a professional now. He works for the TV station. And uh, wow, what a thing to behold. So anyway, uh, we're back in our series on Isaiah. We're going to be doing some stuff from Isaiah 25 in a little while. Here's what we got. A brief, complete history of death. or hyperbole may lead to new beliefs, or a 10th anniversary outpost. What's your earliest memory? I want you to actually think for a second. Just let your mind drift back to as far back as it can go. What's your earliest memory? Does it have clean lines? Like a comic strip drawing? Is it more like a watercolor? It's interesting. You like live for a while and you have no idea that you actually lived during that time and coming to life after being born is more like lighting a candle than flipping on a switch. Leanne, that's my wife. We've been married for 18 years. What's that? What a flex. I mean, it's true. Um, Once uh, for class, she made a life map of memories, like a web of memories, just thinking back as far as she could and then just letting those memories take her forward and see what they were and what she maybe intuitively learned or was embedded in her through those memories. And her very first memory was just of the front door of her childhood home on, get this, Reed Street, in Kansas, <laughs> I've been there since the beginning. <laughs> the front door of her childhood home uh, just completely lit up with sunlight. That's the beginning of her life in light. What about all of our lives? Not just your life, but ours. If we go back far enough in our collective memory, What's there? What's there? Because the memory that she has of her her very first one was like 
something totally forgettable to her mom and her dad, who were adults at that time. And if we go back to the beginning of their lives and their lives and their lives, we go back, what's there? One of the questions that God asks Job is, where were you when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? I wasn't there. Neither were you. But it was something good. In the beginning was the word, John the evangelist wrote, and in him was life, and this life was the light of men. Now, I confess that I do not really know what that means. I do not fully know what that means. I maybe barely know what that means. But I can't help but feel as though, like the memory of the sunlit door, the feeling of God's goodness at the heart of things isn't somehow pointing and agreeing with, yes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was life, and the life was the light of men. The second creation story in Genesis, you know, there's two, the first one and then the second one. The second one tells us that the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Do you know this story? This is yes, this is no. Whose creation is this about? You can ask me about this later if you want. I'm not going to go into it because this is not really a sermon on Genesis. But I think the thing about these stories in Genesis, these early ones, isn't just that they happened, but that they happen. They're about us. The story about the creation of the word is Adam, the Hebrew word. It, it's not a name. It's not Adam. That's silly. It's just the Hebrew word that means human beings, a human being, generically. I think it's about each of us. It's about all of us. And so when it says that God breathed into the human's uh, nostrils the breath, you guys know that word? Some of you, I bet, do. Do you know the word? Breath, the Hebrew word? Do you know it? <laughs> Sorry, not going to put you on the spot. The word is ruach. It's a really fun one to say. You can say it. Say ruach. You got to clear your throat at the end. Ruach. Uh, that word, actually, it is spirit. They don't have, a, like, their word for breath. It's not just this, like, weird, effuse, intangible thing. It is spirit. So what it's saying there is that God breathes into each one, the persons that he makes, uh, his spirit from our creation. The spirit is there. And all of this sounds to me very much like what Derek read from Colossians. You're just getting a little tour of the Bible here. By things... By, by Jesus, all things were created, but also that he is before all of it, and all of it holds together in him, and through him, all things are being reconciled by, before, in, through. It's a lot of prepositions. They kind of confuse me, but if nothing else, it tells me that there's never been a time that God wasn't there. The beginning, life, the capital B beginning, your capital B beginning, life, light, word, spirit, all of it, God's in us. And for the final time, I don't really know what this means. Like, I don't know how to picture this in terms of clean lines, but I do think that I felt something of like the whole watercolor of this that the scriptures is pointing to, uh, at le the very least when I held my babies in my own arms. I think I still feel it. But not everything is the beginning. Things have a middle as well. And the middle of our collective story and the very many different middles of all of our stories are not all life and light, death, 
always becomes a part of it. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you remember that part from the story in the garden? That's what God told the man about that fruit of that one tree. And of course, we know what happened. They ate. Years ago, I read this story to my sons when they were much younger boys than they are now. And afterward, I was like, what do you think about this? What'd you, what'd you hear? And Briggs goes, was God lying? I'm sorry, what? Well, God said that if they ate the fruit, they would die. But then they ate the fruit, and they didn't die. Well, that's a really good point, Briggs. They didn't die, and God did say that. And in fact, if you're paying attention, the serpent was actually the one who said, you won't die. So kind of seems like he's the one who was telling the truth, judging by the fact that the man and the woman, woman went on to live lives and have children and the whole thing. So I said to Briggs, I said, well, what, what do you think? <laughs> Letting myself off the hook of that one. Like, and I said, do you think God lied? And he said, no, I don't think God would lie. He's always had good instincts. I don't think God would lie. And he said, maybe God meant that they would die, but it was just a different kind of dying. What do you think? What do you think? Think about your own life. Remember that it's not just that these stories happened, it's that they happened, they're telling the truth about all of us. Have you ever, for one reason or another, decided to uh, just kind of go against the wisdom of God, and then you've seen the fallout from that? Lots of different ways you can do this. Out of fear, you, you join up with the group and you just pile on someone else's humiliation, or you say, <laughs> bye everybody. <laughs> it's the Bible. You're running from God. It's okay, like I said, the, the, these stories happened. The people ran and hid. I was actually talking seriously because you know, <laughs> You know what this is like, right? Uh, you know, if you've ever had like a, a significant other, you say those words, because you know if you say those words, you'll get what you want, but it's like this empty power that then kind of eats you alive. Or in any situation, you're just kind of massaging and shaping the truth to fit your own ends, but then you find yourself kind of endlessly in this cycle of having to shape the truth to fit your own ends. We all do it. We also all have it done to us. Dad leaves, mom cheats, broken family, or maybe they stay and do nothing but heap shame and insecurity on you, broken kid. Your friend's anger goes off the chain and you never talk to him again. The person you gave yourself to doesn't call again and you're left hollow. Our ways of living have consequences. Broken relationships, people excluded, Mistreated, fear, shame, isolation. The wages of sin is death, is the way that Paul says this. You've heard this verse before from Romans. Some of us have maybe been given a picture of this verse that says, if you sin, God's going to get you dead. But just read the Bible. God isn't doing anything here. Sin is who you're working for. It's your employer. And what sin is paying you is death. And remember, it's a different kind of dying. In the biblical imagination, the wages of sin, the kind of death that it leads to, 
You can be walking around and breathing, but dead in every way that matters. Death is a destructive way of living, and that's what sin does. It's what it brings about. Death, in the biblical imagination, it's a kingdom, it's a power, it's a ruler, it's a tyrant, it's in the air, it's in the water. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Paul wrote, that's a long freaking time. And honestly, by the looks of it, sometimes uh, it's still sitting pretty. So yes, beyond our earliest memories before, there's life and light and singing morning stars, but it also seems like for as long as we can remember, we've been plagued by this way of death. We do not know, or we do not do what we ought to do, what we want to do, we don't do, the whole thing, Paul, back and forth in Romans. It's death's kingdom. We know this. Our man, Frederick Buechner, said if we don't see and own up to the absence, the visible absence of God in the world, who's going to take us seriously when we try to make real what we claim to see as the invisible presence of God in the world? We have to acknowledge this. Death is around us. It is powerful over us. We have to acknowledge this. I want to take just a second, actually, of silence and give you a second uh, to quietly name these things to your own self, where you have worked for sin, where you have been paid death, where you have felt its sting at the hands of others. So I just want to take a second and let you think about that. I know there must be a lot. At times in the past, in moments like this, I've sometimes had you guys send these to me, and I've, we've shared them aloud in various kinds of liturgies and stuff, and I know that they are varied and real and hard. Who will deliver me from this body of death, Paul wrote, after saying, yeah, I don't do what I want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do, and I'm never going to get out of this, this, this endless vortex of sin and death. Who will deliver me, he wrote. But in the very next breath, remember he wrote, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? Not like some twisted sense where we should be glad that we sin and suffer because that's good. No, it's not good. Um, but because... The victory is already his. This is something that has already uh, been taken care of because while sin, just, sin, sin is the just one, sin justly pays you death for your services rendered. God mercifully just gives away life for free. He already has. He's just asking us to live like it. We're going to do a little interlude here. Would you stand? I'm gonna let you guys read this one. I'll start you off. You get, to, you get to say the whole gospel right here. For I delivered to you
please be seated. <laughs> you guys are, did a great job reading that. It's kind of amazing to me that, like, and I know it's like we got to stay on pace and we got to like keep our voices kind of monotone. It's amazing that this can be read in that way, though. Like, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. <laughs> we don't know what we're saying. We don't know. This in Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Folks, it's already done. It was a heist job. Christ stole us out of sin and death's grip. And that's the whole freaking ball game right there. That's it. Working for sin now when we do that, and we all do, it's not so much bad, though it is bad, as it is insane. Like you're living as if you live in a different reality the one, than the one that is, which is, hey, dummies, no more power. You've been transferred to a different kingdom. Now, I was like, I had a really hard time figuring out how to structure this because honestly, this, this is where it feels like a sermon should end. Like there's your gospel. There's your gospel verse. Freed from sin. What's more to say? But I'm afraid that maybe our imagination about all of this gospel-y, death-of-death kind of stuff is maybe just a little too small. And when we hear this, what we're hearing is being a Christian means that my sins are forgiven and I get to go to heaven when I die. And like, that's it. And that's like a really small thing. So let's finally bring in our man, Isaiah. If you read Isaiah 24, it's like a freaking wasteland. Everything's bad. It's just the cycle that we were talking about. And you get to Isaiah 25, and God's going to dispatch of some deadly powers. And then this. It, it, it opens up into this. We've talked about how histories deal, or prophets deal in history, like down in the dirt, and they talk about real events. And then at times, they get real cosmic, like a rocket ship has blasted off into space. And now we're not looking at this one piece of land in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, but we are looking at the whole universe. And that's what we get when he says, and the Lord shall prepare a banquet of all, for all the peoples on this mountain. A banquet of rich food, a banquet of well-aged wines, rich food with marrow, well-aged wines, fine, strained, and he shall swallow up on this mountain the veil that covers all peoples and the mantle. Do you guys know what a mantle is? It's a cloak, like a hood, and it's a cloak. The cloak that is cast over all the nations, what is that? He shall swallow up death forever, and the Lord God shall wipe the tears from every face. And his people's disgrace he shall take off from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah challenges us. Like, how big is your imagination? How full is your hope? How High are your expectations of God. Like, is all you want pardon for the wrong things that you've done? Sure enough, like, you should want that and you'll have it, but is that it? I wonder if our imaginations and our hopes are just sometimes kind of laughably small. Like, just let me off the hook and let me get into the good place. Isaiah, he gets caught up in this ecstatic vision and he says, look at what God will do this mountain and all the peoples and all the nations and every tear and death is swallowed up forever. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die and he shall swallow up death forever. Not the biological phenomenon of death. This is not just like, oh, and now you get to go on living time without end. 
But the fog of death that looms over us, that we spend our days just walking through, the death of ignoring the sufferings of others, the death of that feeling of meaningless that comes because so much of the crap that we strive for is just so absolutely fake and we know it. The death of isolation and exploitation of one another. The kingdom of death that rules over us so that we, and we see it so clearly, like every time you turn on your stupid phone and every time you take a good hard look in the mirror, all of that, God will swallow it up. What a word, gulp. Like we will feast on the best food and wine and God will feast on death. With a giant gulp, he will take it all into himself and that will be all. And then he will wipe the tears from every face. The tears because of the death that is done to us. And he will wipe our disgrace from the earth. The disgrace of the death that we do to others. All of it. Gone. This is what we believe has begun in the crucifixion and resurrection. But honestly, sometimes all of that sounds really abstract and like theological to me. And there's more to say about it because Jesus had more to say about it. So this passage, Isaiah 25, apparently was a very important passage to Jewish teachers in the day of Jesus and for centuries leading up to Jesus. And it became the foundation of this idea that they called the messianic banquet. At the end of things, God's going to have a, a God's going to host a banquet. But then the question was, well, who's going to get a seat at the table for this great feast? Which is kind of funny because Isaiah says it like right there. All the peoples, all the nations, every face. And a lot of folks still, they were like, well, Isaiah, you must have misheard. Because certainly not them. Certainly not that guy. Like, did you hear what they believe about blank, blank, blank? And did you just, do you know what they did to so-and-so? <laughs> There's this document called the Targum. I'm not going to go into all the details of it and the scholarship, but the Targum Isaiah from around the time of Jesus. And it, and it says, it's commenting on this passage. And it says, yeah, the Gentiles are going to be there with us. They're going to be on the mountain at the meal. But instead of food, it's just going to be a feast of perpetual plagues plague after plague after plague that is going to bring shame on them and then annihilate them. Yeah. There's another book called Enoch uh, from just right around the time of Jesus. And it envisioned the banquet with the Messiah. And it's like, yeah, everybody's going to be there, even the Gentiles. Hooray. But guess who else is going to be there? The angel of death. And he had a sword. And he slays all the Gentiles in this story. Boom! Take that, Gentiles. Blood just everywhere. And finally, there was another one. There was a scroll from the same community. Have you guys heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? This is from a place called Qumran in Israel. Um, there's a scroll that was, that, was, that was there called the Messianic Rule. And it also has a feast, and they're talking about this, because this is like the idea. This is like the way you talk about heaven. They're taught, like, what's it going to be like? They're like, messianic banquet. What's it going to be like? 
the Messianic rule, and it has a feast too, but this time just no Gentiles at all. They're like not even let through the door. They're like cast off into whatever abyss before there's even a chance to get up to the front of the line. And it's like, oh, it's just us chosen people, but actually it's not even just us chosen people. It's like us chosen people who really got it all right. Like the ones who really knew and the ones who really acted the way that God said to act, they're the ones. And definitely no one, and they said this specifically, no one that has leprosy or who is paralyzed or who is blind or who is deaf, you know, all the people that Jesus spent all of his time with. Take that, losers! So apparently, here's some observations. We humans, we've always had a thing for making salvation about us and our people. People hear heaven all through the ages, and they immediately think, who's in, who's out? The human heart's capacity for hatred is staggering, almost admirable in its steadfastness, a quality that goes back at least as far as the time of Jesus. And this conversation, because this conversation about Isaiah 25 is alive and well when Jesus was living in Galilee. Here's a fun fact about the Bible. Did you know that it didn't drop out of the sky? Like, did you know that people in the Bible were talking about things that aren't contained in the Bible? Like, there are conversations in the background. Like, these ideas are not contained in a vacuum. So, like, this really helps to know this when you start reading things like parables and other teachings of Jesus. Because they're like, oh, there was another teacher at the time, or there was a thing in this targum that said this. And so when Jesus drops in a saying about a banquet, he's not just like talking out of the blue. He's responding. For example, Luke 14. Jesus says, when you are invited to a feast, go and sit in the lowest place because the scroll of the the the... What was it called? The Messianic rule. Thank you. That was like, it detailed who's going to sit where in what order. And the coolest people sit closest and the lamest people sit farthest away. So when Jesus is like, hey, go and sit in the lowest place, he's like, guess what? Messianic rule people, it doesn't work that way. And then right after that, he says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Don't invite your own people. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Sidebar, when Leanne and I got married, I seriously wrestled with this passage, and I was like, do I need to like go around the streets and just invite random poor, blind strangers like to my wedding? Now, I think maybe that would actually be awesome, but that's the problem with reading the Bible devoid of, like it's, it's a thing that happens in a context. And so Jesus is speaking to like this figurative idea of, hey, guess who's not making it into the messianic banquet, the poor, the blind. And Jesus is like, hey, when you have a banquet, you should invite them because guess who's going to be there in the end. So when Jesus is talking about these things in Luke 14, I think he's really saying something and he's, thinking he's really challenging these other ideas about what kind of banquet God is throwing in Isaiah 25. It's like Jesus is now the one saying, how big is your imagination for what God will do? How big is your hope for who he will do it for? So then, still in Luke 14, right after Jesus says these couple of things about some feast etiquette, there's a guy sitting at the table. They're at a table right now, by the way. This guy kind of sits back and he's like, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus 
maybe thinking this guy is being a little bit smug, like this guy is like, oh, you think, or Jesus is like, you think you know who? Let, let me press this a little bit farther because I don't know that you're actually getting the picture. And so he seizes his opportunity. He's like, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Listen to this. And he tells him a parable, like a really spicy one that really expounds the views on this messianic banquet. And here's what he says. The whole text is going to be right here. You don't have to read it. I'll summarize it for you. I will tell you this. This version of the messianic banquet is a comically absurd version in which all of the guests who were invited suddenly remembered that they had somewhere else to be. And they don't come. All the people who are like, it's us and the angel of death is going to cut their throats. Those people, they're like, whoops, I, uh, I bought a house and it turns out I never even saw it. So I should probably go check that out. Or like, oops, I bought a bunch of cows and I don't even know if they can walk. So I'd better go see about that. Or like, whoops, I got married. <laughs> Can't be there. Jesus is making fun of the people from those other versions of the story because he is funny and a genius. And everyone in his story, everyone who had a right to be there, the guys who were like wiping the blood off of their shoes from all the Gentiles who were slain, those people, they just decide not to show up. And so now, guess what? The seats are empty. So what happens? Well, the host calls his servant. He's like, hey, come here. I want you to go and just invite everybody. Tell them they're all going to come. I don't care who it is. Bring in the poor. Bring in the crippled. Bring in the blind. Bring in the lame, the exact ones of the Messianic scroll who are like, they can't come. Jesus is like, tell them they're coming. And then also go out to the, the highways and the hedges. Highway, what a weird thing, the highways and the hedges. You know who's just hanging around in highways and hedges? Robbers thieves, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan, they're waiting for their chance to ambush travelers. And he's like, go tell them they're going to come. And he actually says, compel them. This is really important. This word is important. Compel them, not, be, not in the sense that like you're going to tie their hands behind their back and kick them and force them to go. But in the sense that the grace of this lavish banquet invitation to them, to anyone, this is so unbelievable. They're going to be like, you got the wrong guy. You can't mean me. And, he said, and, the, and the host says, no, no, no. Tell them I know exactly who I'm talking to. I know exactly who I'm inviting. And I don't care what's wrong with you. You need to get here as soon as possible. We can't start the feast without you. We need you here. So friends, I'm afraid that when we hear about this banquet and like going up to drink with God and swallowing up death in Isaiah, that somewhere deep down, like we're actually not fully getting the picture, which is why I think Jesus tells this parable. Like he's challenging you. Oh yeah, you think you know? Blessed is everyone. Who do you think is everyone? Because maybe somewhere deep down, what we're imagining is a bunch of people uh, like us bunch of people who look like us, who sound like us, a bunch of people who agree with all of our ideas about politics and religion. Maybe somewhere in us, there's an apathy, like a laziness that kind of just doesn't care about others and is perfectly content to just make sure as long as I can get into heaven, I'm good. Or if not apathy, maybe 
Maybe in some of us, God forgive us, there is even this active downward looking judgment on others that would rather just keep certain people out if we were being perfectly honest about it. Maybe. Like does our version of the end of things have God wiping, wiping away the tears just from the faces of these like nice like me folks over here? Or is it all faces? Is it every face? So I think Jesus is saying a few things with this parable. One, that the religious insiders, this is y'all, this is you, it's me too. The gospels, by the way, will hit a lot different when you finally realize that you're the Pharisee. Like you're not the poor, blind, sick, lame one. You who have grown up in church, have read the Bible your whole lives, you're the Pharisee. I am too. But it's the religious insiders, the ones who already have the invitation, they're the ones who are in danger of missing out because they were out buying real estate or whatever. The second thing is that many of the folks who make it in, make it in, get a seat at the table, are going to seem to some religious folks like all the wrong people. And third, that the point for those who are the servant in the parable, like the ones who are genuinely serving the host, hopefully this could be us, the point is just to go invite as many people as you can and leave the job of judgment and exclusion to the birds. The, ma- the host doesn't seem very interested in that. He's like, get everybody, just get them all. I don't care, robbers, they can't walk, carry them. They can't see, lead them. I don't know, just bring them. So there's Jesus' version of Messianic Banquet, Isaiah 25. It looks like this, folks. Don't, if, if you're invited, like, don't keep yourself out. <laughs> don't be like, oh, sorry, I got these cows. And remember that, like, the reason why people, if we're doing it right, what, should, what they should need to be compelled or convinced about it's, it's not they need to be compelled because it's like offensive somehow. They need to be compelled because it is way too good to be true. No one in their right mind would ever believe like, this is for me? That's what should make it unbelievable? Here's what I love about Jesus. We're almost to the end. Is that he didn't just talk. He didn't just talk about this great death-swallowing banquet. But when you, when you read his actions in light of Isaiah 25, like he was living this out in real time before he even died. Like, yes, we know he swallowed up death with death, with his death. But he also swallowed up death with his life. Like, what is Jesus always doing in the gospels? Like, he's always reclining at table. He's eating with folks and time after time, after time, when we find him reclining at the table, there is something that a lot of folks really hate about this with Jesus. In Matthew 9, it says, as Jesus reclined at the table, behold, who came to eat with him? Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, fill in the name of the group of people that you think are the worst. They're reclining with Jesus and his disciples, and the Pharisees see this, and they say, you, you all, 
see this, and you say, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Because the banquet doesn't go like that, folks. I'm starting to be convinced that whenever Jesus eats with these folks, it's not just to rile people's feathers. It's not just to, like, get the Pharisees all in a bother. And it's not just so he has, like, a cool illustration. I think he is actually bringing forward into the present, in flesh and blood. He is incarnating the way that he knows that things are going to be in the end. So this, this isn't just merely like a social thing in that moment, in the, in the there and then. It is, this is what it's going to be in the end. We'd better get started now. The Messianic banquet from Isaiah 25 was happening all over the Galilee 2,000 years ago. Let's go do it here. Let's go do it here. Let's go do it here. You're going to be there at the end. Why don't you come eat with me now? Death was being swallowed up right there. <sighs> Feasts where anyone from anywhere can come and be fed and they can come and have their tears wiped away, they're like, they're like outposts in God's campaign against sin and death. It's like there's this war, picture like Napoleon. With his, sorry, God is not Napoleon. <laughs> but picture something like that. You've got your big table, Right? with your map and you're moving your little horses and your flags around. The feasts are like that. Ooh, let's do one there. Let's do one there. You guys know what a forward operating base is? It's a military term, a FOB. I learned this from Leanne's cousin, John. He's in the army. He's a really cool guy. But a FOB, before, it's like you're in foreign enemy wherever and you gotta set up a base where it's like, this is the way we do things here. We're gonna do it like we do back home on the forward operating base. A feast is like a forward operating base for the final restoration of things. When God has put all enemies under his feet and when Christ will be all in all. Have you ever been to a feast? Have you? Like a feast. Have you? I have. On our 10th anniversary, Leanne and I, we had all of our closest friends over, the staff. Keevan and Stephanie were there. The others weren't, but not because, that's just because they weren't our friends yet. They were babies. 10th anniversary, we have them over. Derek was also there, and Tab. We hauled our dining tables out into the backyard. We hung up lights. We spent way more money than we should have on what I was making on incredible just food and drink. And we wanted just to say thank you for helping us make it this far. And we wanted to remember and to celebrate because it's, it's, a, it's a together thing. This is what's great about the feast as an image as opposed to like you just like walking through the pearly gates because you don't go alone. And easily, easily, this words just fail. One of like the holiest moments of my whole life played out over several hours on that perfect September evening in 2015. And I think, this is what it's like. This is what it's like. When I think of evangelism and of like, if we're going to communicate to people the grace of God, the goodness of the way things are going to be, I wonder if what would help all of these like abstract ideas of ours and our gospel tracks, like what would help would be some really good cheese and bread. So here's my question for you. 
if you think about it, who's missing from the table? Who's not at the table? Who needs to have their face looked into by God as he said, as he says, everything's going to be okay now. You're with me. You're here. Let's eat. Who needs to be told, hey, death is being swallowed up. That fog of death that you're walking around in, it's being dispelled. It's being swallowed up. Who needs to be compelled to the party because they need to know, man, the grace really is like that good and I really am talking about you and I don't care that you just ambushed that guy on the way to Jerusalem. So, I have a proposition for you. Put CCF's money where my mouth is. I'll give you a proposition. Here's a deal. Before the end of the semester, hold a feast for your non-CCF friends. And CCF will pay for it. Okay? Here are the terms. Invite your friends who aren't from CCF. Okay? From your club, from your team, from your fraternity, your sorority, your organization, your class, your work. I don't care. Invite them to your place. If you don't have a place, like if you live in a dorm, uh, talk to me. Or a staff person. CCF house has a kitchen. You can cook there. We'll let you use it. We'll work it out. So invite people. Step one. Step two. Go and buy ingredients. And you can get really good ingredients. I don't care what you spend. Go and get really good stuff and learn how to cook a meal. If you don't, this will be good practice. You cannot buy pizza from Domino's. You cannot buy Taco Bell this row right here. You cannot buy Taco Bell. You have to, no, 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 you have to cook. You have to make it and host the feast, okay? Next step, feast with your friends. You do not have to preach the gospel to them as part of this feast. In fact, I would probably prefer that you didn't. Like, well, my campus pastor said that I have to ask you if Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior now. Otherwise, he's not, <laughs> otherwise he's not going to pay for the food. <laughs> not true. But if something about the swallowing up of death in some way or another happens to come up, that's a win. Next step, after the feast, come and tell a staff person. Tell me, tell another staff person the story of your feast. Tell us the story, then give us the receipts, make sure you have your name on them, uh, and then boom, we'll give you the money. We'll pay for it. Okay? I hope you take me up on it. I'm serious. Great question. Yes, you can pair up. Absolutely. In fact, I would encourage that, but if it's like, I got eight CCF people together and we invited a guy from my class, but then he didn't even show up, but we spent $400 on steak. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Please pair up. Use your roommates. Use your other friends. Use your small group. Use somebody from your small group or whatever. Um, don't go it alone. That's a, thank you for asking that. Um, but do make it about other people, okay? People from not here, okay? And this is not a ploy to like get them to come to services or whatever. I don't care if they never come to a service. This is not about that. This is about that way down there at the end of things. Forward operating feast. Okay. And so now, as we look with hope and wonder at the future, 
may our imaginations get bigger. And may we maybe trust God for more than we have done so far. And may we have the courage and the faith to live like it in the meantime, hosting feasts, wiping away tears, extending invitation and compassion to the ones that some would rather keep out. And may we have the heart to truly believe and believe in Christ, the Christ, that light and life that was with us from the beginning and that he will swallow up death in the end. Let's pray. Jesus, you haggled a lot with folks like us who knew the things and did the things, thought we had it all, but who wouldn't go out and collect in the lost sheep. We wouldn't go out and gather the robbers from the highway. And if we're not going to do it, you're going to find somebody else to do it. So would you please help us to follow in your way that the vision of the banquet that you had would be our vision too, feasting, grace, that it wouldn't just be a weird, small, twisted thing about me going to a fun place when I die, uh, but that we really, really would be about these, uh, these outposts here in the meantime for your kingdom. Be with us and help us. Amen.